Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Seremi. This is Season 1, Episode 8, The Trial, Part 1. Last, never first, no worse since birth. Got my hopes set on heaven because it's hell here on earth. My life was a mess. Calls will be recorded and may be monitored. You may start the conversation now. Hey, hey. I was telling yesterday, I, I said when uh, it comes to wrongful convictions, I was like, uh, uh, Laura's pretty passionate. I said, and, uh, she, she, ain't, she ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> This is an ongoing story, so if you're just getting started, hit pause, go back and start with episode one. Before we get started, please note that today's episode does include a racial slur, so please use caution. Well, you should have seen the the reaction when I was sitting in the car and just asked for the attorney. I hadn't had an encounter on this level in my life, and I'm a black dude in Alabama, and you got stories about down south. And then he proceeds to say, well, y'all, you know, they call me. It pretty much is like, they call me, or I'm the, I'm the niggas lawyer down here, you know that. And I'm like, wow. I'm the niggas lawyer down here. And I hear them talk about the material or the cutting and all cutting is supposed to have been tested. And But I'm not hearing everything because his attorney is really speaking low. And then I just kind of think things are going wrong. I look over in the jury box and the juror, one juror is asleep. And in my mind, and you know, it's like, how is he going to get a fair trial if one of the jurors is actually asleep? in the jury box. I just felt like it was unbalanced, like something just was so off. And in in my mind, I was like, are they really working for him? Are they really fighting for him? Is this the best that they could do? Right before the trial, they tell me that they're not gonna let the young lady testify who Stevelyn attempted to kill. Then they say that they had another witness, but couldn't find this this other witness. So I'm like, everything was, it just seemed like everything was just going haywire at that point. I had my church praying. I was praying. Friends and family were praying. I knew what evidence it was. I knew he did not commit a murder. And I just thought there was no way he's going to be convicted. So I've got my daughter with me, and they say guilty. Life without parole. My daughter screams. And she runs out of the courtroom. And I run after her, and there's a guard. And he tells her to shut up or I'm going to put you in jail with your father. 
And something just came over me because the reality of where I am hit me right then. And then at that point, I just felt like there wasn't any way that we were gonna win this thing. The way that Chief Rose explained it and said that had I not dug deep, I would not have found this envelope. And she said, and I wanted to make sure Destry had that you had all of his personal belongings. So that meant that it was buried. That doesn't mean that that means that it was buried away. It was buried away so it would not be found to set this man free. To understand what happened at the trial, I'd like to go back to the years just before Destry McKinney was born. These were the things happening in the South and in Alabama that his parents were experiencing and living through and seeing on the news. In 1961, Herbert Lee was helping to register black voters. He was killed by a state legislator in Liberty, Mississippi. There was an eyewitness to the murder who was also later killed. There were no charges. In 1962, Corporal Roman Duxworth Jr., a black Navy military police officer, was visiting his wife who had just had a baby in Taylorsville, Mississippi. He was ordered off a bus by a white police officer He was beaten with a blackjack, which is a heavy leather pouch filled with lead or a steel pipe. When he tried to defend himself, the police officer shot and killed him. There were no charges. They suspected that the police officer thought he was a freedom rider challenging segregation. In 1963, William Lewis Moore was a white postman. He was marching in Alabama against segregation. He was killed with a gun owned by Floyd Simpson. There were no charges. 1963 was the same year that the 16th Street Baptist Church, which was the Center for Civil Rights Meetings, was bombed and killed four young black girls. In 1964, Lewis Allen, the eyewitness to Herbert Lee's murder by the state legislature, he had been threatened, jailed, and harassed by the county sheriff ever since the murder of the other civil rights activist, he decided to move north and flee this violence. And the day that he was leaving, the sheriff murdered him. There were no arrests. In 1965, on February 21st, Malcolm X was assassinated. Five days later, Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed by state troopers in Marion, Alabama for marching for voting rights. That same year, Reverend James Reeb, a white man who was helping with voting rights in Selma, Alabama, was beaten to death by white men walking down the street. That same year was the death of Viola Liuzzo, the white civil rights activist who was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan and acquitted in a small courtroom in Alabama. In 1965, that same year, Willie Willie Brewster in Anderson, Alabama, was killed on his way home from work by a National States Rights Work Party members. This was a violent neo-Nazi group. The killer was a man named Hubert Strange. 
He was convicted of second-degree murder. This was the first time in the history of Alabama that a white man was convicted of killing a black man. But before we say, wow, finally, he never saw a moment in prison. He was released after his conviction pending his appeal, which never came, and he died two years later of other causes. That same year, Jonathan Daniels was killed in Hainville, Alabama. He was a white seminary student helping with black voter registration. He was murdered by a deputy sheriff who was acquitted. In 1966, Samuel Young Jr., a black college student, was shot by a gas station owner over a segregated restroom. The gas station owner was found not guilty by an all-white jury. In 1967, Destry McKinney was born. And a year later, in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee. This was what was happening in the world when Destry's parents were having him. If you haven't seen the movie Selma about Martin Luther King and the Voting Rights March, I highly recommend it. Right now, it's on Amazon Prime for free this month. And so take advantage and, and, and have a, learn some history. And it's a, it's a very well done movie. This was what was happening when Destry was born. He was born in Alabama, where all white juries were routinely acquitting the killers of black men. Needless to say, a fair trial in Alabama was hard to come by. Let's talk about what a fair trial is. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a fair trial as a trial that is conducted fairly, justly, and with procedural regularity by an impartial judge and in which the defendant is afforded his or her rights under the U.S. Constitution or the appropriate state constitution. Then it has a note. Among the factors used to, to determine whether a defendant received a fair trial are these. The effectiveness of the assistance of counsel, the opportunity to present evidence and witnesses, the opportunity to rebut the opposition's evidence and cross-examine the opposition's witnesses, the presence of an impartial jury, and the judge's freedom from bias. There's three main things that I believe play the biggest role when it comes to a trial. The first would be the judge. The reason the judge makes a difference is because they get to decide what the rules are. They're supposed to follow the law, but they get to determine what evidence is admitted and what evidence is not admitted. I've read enough trial transcripts at this point that I've seen judges that are incredibly pro-prosecution, where they will allow every single thing in that the prosecution wants and nearly nothing that the defense wants. If the judge in your case won't let you bring in the evidence you need to defend yourself, the trial may be over before it started. The second thing would be the attorneys involved. Some prosecutors are more aggressive than others. Some prosecutors seek higher sentences than others. We know that the vast majority of death penalty cases in the United States are done by a tiny percentage of the prosecutors. And the luck of the draw with whether you have a death penalty case depends entirely on where your case is being tried. Back to that legal definition, it said one of the things, whether you got a fair trial, is the effectiveness of the assistance of counsel. That would be how good is your attorney? Do you have a defense attorney that cares? 
Do you have a defense attorney that has experience, resources, time? Do you have an overworked public defender who has hundreds of cases on their desk that they're trying to shuffle and do the best they can? Does your attorney call himself a racial slur in regards to you in Alabama and you're a black man? The last thing in a fair trial would be the jury. As we've discussed in the last two episodes, many, many murderers of black men were acquitted by all white juries. Jury selection should actually be called jury deselection because you don't actually get to choose the jury. You can only fight to keep certain people off the jury. And to be honest, when I first read through Destry McKinney's case, I skimmed through the voir dire section where they selected the jury because it was incredibly long and tedious and they asked the same questions over and over again. And before this episode, I went back through and read it and my horror at his defense attorney who called himself the lawyer, my horror that the state destroyed the evidence by releasing the car, my horror that the exculpatory evidence was hidden, was even increased when I read through the details of the jury selection. It was long and tedious, so I won't bore you with all of it, but I'd like to talk about three people in the jury pool in particular. One thing that I'll mention before I get into that is this is a very small town, and there was a decent amount of coverage of this case in the paper, And so one of the first things that probably should have been considered would have been a change of venue because finding an impartial jury was going to be tough. The second thing is why do we have a prosecutor who was prosecuting the victim in this case for an attempted murder charge and let her out on bond who is now prosecuting Destry McKinney? This is clearly a conflict of interest. An independent prosecutor would have been The next thing that should have happened, neither one of those things were even mentioned. Back to the jury selection. We have in the jury poll a Sylacauga police officer. When he was asked if he knew details of the case, he said yes. They said, do you know facts of the case? He said yes. They said, how do you know? He said, I'm a Sylacauga police officer and I work with the investigator. When the defense team challenged him from being in the jury pool because he had details of the case and worked with the investigator, the prosecutor tried to keep him in the jury pool and said, oh, no, no, he said he can be fair and impartial. He can set all that information he already knows aside. The interesting thing about that is if you put a police officer who helped investigate the case on the jury, that's probably an almost a slam dunk to get the trial thrown out after the fact. And a friend who's a criminal defense attorney recently told me that typically prosecutors want to win and they don't want their cases thrown out later. So they wouldn't even consider doing something like that. So in small town Alabama, why do you think they would have tried to do that? Perhaps because they're confident that their cases will not be overturned. If you've been getting away with something for decades, maybe that's just the way things work down there. A second juror that I want to mention was a distant relative of Destry McKinney. He believed, he wasn't even sure the relation, but he believed that his great uncle might have been Destry McKinney's uncle, and someone had said there's some relation, but they didn't know each other. So 
basically they're strangers, but there's some like third, fourth, fifth generation connection. And they were promptly removed from the jury pool for being a relative. Then we come to a young lady that I'm going to call Ms. T. So Ms. T, if you recall when Stevelin attacked Ms. S, not her real name, when with the attempted murder charge where she gunned her down in the street, Stevelin was there with her sister. Ms. T, who is in the jury pool, explains that she knows Destry McKinney. She knew Stevelin very well. She knows Stevelin's sister, and she considers herself a very close, if not best friend, to Stevelin's sister. They ask her if she can be fair and impartial, and she says, I don't think so. I know everyone involved. They said, are you sure? Are you sure you couldn't be fair? And she said, I also know someone who was killed by gunshot, and this would be really hard. And they said, do you want to serve on the jury? And she said, no, I really don't. When the defense challenged her from being in the jury pool, the judge denied their challenge and left her in the jury pool. This is unbelievable. What What is this? Small town Alabama, you know, is it 1965? Like, what? what is, are, are you kidding me? Now, none of the three people that I just mentioned ended up on the final jury. But this is the kind of shenanigans that was happening during jury selection. None of this sounds fair or impartial to me. Honestly, I'm not sure anything with this trial went right. To finish up with today's episode, I'm going to let Destry tell you himself how he felt about his attorney. Uh, was the first attorney that uh, I retained. One of the requests that I, you know, kind of harped on was a bond reduction. One day he had came come to see me at the county jail, and I think we were in the medical section of the jail. That was the place where they gave like privacy for attorneys and their clients. And we were talking you know, just in the midst of the conversation. So he said he was the nigger's attorney. That's how they referred to him. And I just kind of, just kind of shocked me, you know, that you know, we just using this type of language in this professional setting and uh, that he felt comfortable enough with me to say that. And so I was offended. Uh, he's a white guy. He said it to me and to other people in my family as well. You know, in that position, when you caught like that and you really need something and you aware that the situation can get worse and worse, it makes you swallow a lot of pride. It makes you put up with a lot of stuff, hoping that you know, this person can help. But it, it, it strikes a nerve. I told you I was in a holding cell for four days in the county jail. The reason they had me up there for so long, I was in the cell with another guy who had multiple knots on his head from being beat in the back. There was a war zone going on. They had different cities that would battle one another back there. And one guy came out, it looked like, you know, his lip was almost disconnected from his face. Another guy's ear was, you know, they were coming out bloody, sending them to the hospital. And so the guy who was in the cell with me was, you know, describing how it was back there. So it was the bank in the county jail, yes. 
Talladega County Jail, and the overcrowding as well. Two-man cell with five guys in it. When I got in the cell that they put me in, I slept on the floor under a bunk bed about two feet away from the toilet. And you had three other guys or two other guys on the floor and then two guys on the bed. So imagine, you know, this guy's talking this, you know, saying what he wants to say to you, but he's the one that got to go before the court and represent you and try to get your bond reduced or whatever else he's filing. He's, this is what he does. Had to bite your tongue because I'm in, I'm, I'm at his mercy right now. So I guess he, he knew, he knows that. And so he feel comfortable to say whatever he wanted to say. Thank you for listening to Episode 8 of Aggravating Circumstances. This is an ongoing story. If you have any information you would like to share, please feel free to reach out at circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. More information can also be found at our website, which is aggravatingcircumstances.com or circpod.com. As always, remember to fasten your seatbelts. Don't forget the kids in the back seat. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be finishing up with more music by Destry McKinney. My number one love, mom. Passed in a sleep. Pops not providing eats. I can't slip. Now I'm surviving streets where the police seize and search. Ease your purse. Then worse, lock you up in this porky pig network. I turn the channel. This is neighborhood scandals. Jacking rides got me rolling. Nine cocked in my flow panel. I'm no credit. Job either can't pass a drug test, so I guess it's just me and my girl Nina. I'm getting gone, growing up on whatever God ghetto gave me, and any kind of income. Had a stepdad, no love for what mom had. What goes around, gonna come around to get down on you real fast. I'm in the dirt, no work. Head strong, I started drinking. Now I'm thinking like I'm King Kong. Half on a baby, still no gravy. God, please save me out this world. The devil Don must have made me. I'm going crazy, and lately it's making sense. Too much pressure. With no treasure, got your brother tense. I hip hop over the fence, invade your residence. Resistance put to a halt with no hesitance. Now, mama raised me with love and care. But as I stare into the mirror now, I find it ain't even there. Truth or dare, well, I'm gonna take both since life is a trip. I'm gonna ride with the Holy Ghost. Since life is a trip, I'm gonna ride with the Holy Ghost.
Holy Ghost.